Welcome to the Otherworldly Oracle official podcast. We are your hosts, Kitty and Alora. And welcome to season four, Oracles. We are thrilled to be back in action. We have seriously missed podcasting, and we've been looking forward to starting this season because we have some really exciting episodes in store. Kicking off this season, we have recruited a friend and the author of Barbarous Words, a compendium of conjurations, British folk magic, and other popish charms, George Hares, to explore the intriguing world of British folk magic. So grab your cuppa and settle in. Hello, how's everyone doing? Hey, hey. How you doing, George? Okay. You there? <laughs> yeah, all good nerds. Sorry. No, you're good. I'm like, we've I'm, lost him in the first five seconds. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm doing peachy, thank you. <laughs> awesome. I can't believe it's already a new year. That's crazy. Oh, uh, right. yeah. And, and it's a new season of Otherworldly Oracle Officials, so... What, what? I can't believe this is season four already. Like, like we've been doing this that long already. I know it's kind of, it's kind of unbelievable, honestly, because I feel like it's, (laughs) it's just gone by so fast. Yes. And it just keeps growing, which is awesome. This is true. We like growth. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) We have a special guest today. He has been a friend of ours for quite a few years now. I think we figured out it's been at least eight years uh, via YouTube yeah. we met. And he recently published a book. So first, a big congratulations to you, George. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Pretty awesome. So can you go ahead and maybe introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about you, maybe where you live and how you came to be interested in British folk magic. Yeah, of course. So my name's George Hares, as mentioned. I'm a YouTuber. Um, so I kind of, I have like a YouTube channel based around British folk magic and traditional witchcraft um, called George Hares. I describe myself as a folk magical practitioner or a folk magician, um, also a witch as well. I've literally no qualms in calling myself that. Like, I know some people kind of, you know, have sort of different approaches to the term witch, but I feel like maybe that might be just sort of talked about later. But yeah, I've been practicing magic in its various forms since I've been 11. So I'm 32 now. And yeah, I'm an author of of Barbarous Words, as you said. But yeah, I live in lovely Scotland. So at the minute, it's absolutely freezing. (laughs) It's so cold. I was going to ask. Oh, I'm so jealous of you, though. Not the cold part, but... Scotland, and I'm like, oh... It is, it is really pretty, it's super pretty. And it's weird because like you can literally drive out for like half an hour and you're like, you're in the middle of nowhere and it's oh. stunning as well. It's absolutely beautiful. So I feel really lucky. It kind of took a lot to come up here, but 
I'm glad I made the move. Like it was a good move, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're originally not from Scotland, correct? Um, correct. This is this is a long story, but I, you will, you know, I'm glad you told everyone to grab a cuppa because, oh my word, it's, it's a story. <laughs> um, it's a process. I was born in Essex, but I was raised in East London, and then when I was 17, I moved up to North England to Manchester mm-hmm. um, to do some studying. So my accent's a little bit like the north and south of England. I've had like a love child and then it's me, <laughs> you know? I'm like the dirty secret. <laughs> That's awesome. We wouldn't know the difference, I don't think. Yeah, you we can't tell. Yeah, no. Yeah. no. It's, it's kind of weird. If I go one way, they're like, oh, you're Southerner. If I go another way, they're like, oh, you're Northerner. I'm like, oh, okay, I can't win. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that's, I think that's true for every country, like the U.S. Yeah. You can definitely tell north and south, and then, mm-hmm. but here in Australia, it's a little bit like you can definitely tell east and west. That's the big divide here. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Oh cool. Oh yeah, because Queenslanders and Western Australians sound way different. I feel like afterwards I'm gonna have to YouTube that accents now. You got me. <laughs> yeah, for real. Me too. Yeah. But yeah, so that's kind of just a, a bit about myself, really. I've kind of practiced folk magic in its various forms. I've kind of, I have gone through different kind of, I've had different experiences with some uh, various forms of folk magic as well. So I was involved in practicing hoodoo and I still also do practice hoodoo and root work as well. But mainly <laughs> my kind of big thing is British folk magic and traditional witchcraft, really. Okay, so that kind of leads into our next question because I am heaps familiar with hoodoo, Southern folk conjure, that style of magic. But uh, for people like me who haven't ever read or heard anything really about British folk magic, can you explain what it consists of and maybe a little bit of its history? Yeah, of course. It's, um, It's a bit of an interesting one because technically... Technically speaking, speaking, I could say, um, you know, British folk magic is just folk magic practiced in Britain. So technically speaking, you know, we could kind of say that for the sake of arguing. But actually what I'm morely referring to is the um, the magical practice of the cunning folk from the early modern period um, in Britain to the late 1800s and typically early 1900s as well. And it's kind of that practice. Um, so the practice consists of typically animism and the idea that every living thing has a spirit has an essence but also in the idea of contagion so um you know that magical idea of there is contagion so um just as an example like a witch bowl is a really sort of famous thing within british folk magic and I'm, i'm pretty sure it's kind of become immersed in other magical practice um practices as well which i kind of love but you know the it's the idea that your um you put your sort of personal effects within that bottle so it would be your hair nails blood urine as well because you know folk magic is kind of hands dirty kind of operative folk magic yes Um, yes (laughs) yeah yeah it's not for the squeamish i feel but it's you know it's it's kind of that idea of that witch bottle representing then um, you're a part of your essence so that if any maleficia or ill will or ill intent was sent um, it would go to the bottle rather than the person. And that's kind of the idea of contagion, really. 
Or if you have an illness, you can transfer it to a tree and give it to a living thing. The idea of magically, there is that kind of element of contagion there. So there's there's quite a lot of things that British folk magic features, but morally speaking, when I kind of talk about that, it's it's majorly to kind of the cunning folk and the wise men, wise women, pellers. But, you know, they went by different names. Um, and in the early 1900s, you had this white witch that come out, which wouldn't have really existed in the early modern period in Britain, but it's to kind of represent that sort of practice that was happening way back when, really. So that's kind of a bit of, you know, about British folk magic. But I feel like we would be here for like two days because I just keep talking. (laughs) Oh, I think it's interesting you talk about transferring an illness to a tree. That's actually a part of folk magic where I live in Florida and the U.S. as well. And I've also read about it, I think, in Appalachian folk magic, too. I love that. I kind of find how I, I what I find really interesting is that a lot of folk magic tends to travel mm-hmm. um, and I kind of love that and become immersed in different practices. So um, like you're mentioning kind of in the States, but also interestingly enough in Australia, and I wish for the life of me, I had the actual house, the information. So apologies for this guys, my references are caught off guard here. It's just kind of sprung up in my head, <laughs> um, but I actually found um, a house where there had been sort of settlers that had come over um, from Britain and Basically, the house contained witch marks, which which are um, apotropaic marks to basically get rid of evil, to remove evil, to ward away evil. And they would be sort of burn marks in beams. And they typically, there were so many different patterns, but they were actually found in Australia, which is kind of really interesting because, it, again, it shows that kind of that trans, transference that mm-hmm. it kind of knows no bounds. And I yeah. kind of love that. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I lied. I have heard of British folk magic, but like <laughs> most things, it's like things I are like I do. So then I'm like, oh, that's British for all. Oh, it has a label. OK. Yeah. <laughs> well, most of us, I think in the well, I don't I almost say most. A lot of us in the United States have English or, you know, ancestors. Right. Our British ancestors, European, yeah. we're bound to hear of some of these practices being carried through, you know, carried over here. Very cool. Do you feel it's limited to folks who live in the British Isles? And when I say it, I mean, do you feel like anybody can practice British folk magic or do you have to live there to like get the essence of it? I'm not necessarily sure in a sense, because I think, you know, like we was talking about the the idea of the settlers in Australia, that kind of there were these witch marks that were found in, in houses. Um, and if you look over to the States, there's evidence of that in, you know, other folk magical traditions such as witch bottles and stuff like that. So I think that anybody can actually practice British folk magic, really, because it is just a folk magical tradition. And, and really... If you think about it, folk magic, it's it's magic of the folk. It's magic of the people. That's kind of, you know, it's it's kind of accessible to everyone, um, you know. And I think that folk magic in itself, no matter what tradition really is, is quite simplistic and quite approachable for everyone. Um, because I think it's kind of, because it's not really made, we have this idea of high magic and low magic, right? So we have this kind of, the idea of high magic being like ceremonial magic and low magic being kind of folk magic. 
Um, but, you know, most of the people that did practice folk magic were people like agricultural workers, rural workers, or, or people that were not necessarily the most, always the most highest up in society, if that makes sense. Right. So it was kind of, you know, people that needed kind of quick fixes, you know, because for instance, I, I haven't got any money or I'm finding it really, you know, I feel quite threatened. I need that protection, that kind of thing. And so I think that really, you know, it's kind of the reason why it's folk magic is because it is accessible to people and it is accessible to folk. So definitely, actually, I kind of said, I'm not sure at the beginning, but I've kind of changed my own mind on it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I do, I do think that it, anyone can practice it because it is designed for people it's meant to be approachable it's it's meant Mm -hmm. to be something that is accessible really Um, awesome I love that answer that that's that's perfect so (laughs) I have I'm gonna switch gears a little bit but still on the same topic kind of this is for both you Alora and George who is your favorite cunning man woman or witch from history George you can go first Oh my God, that is a tough question. Just because there's <laughs> so many of them. I know, I yeah. find a lot of inspiration from. But um, I think if I had to not necessarily pick one, because I have to say I have like a kind of fondness of, of, of all of them just because of different examples and ways mm-hmm. in which they worked. But one of the characters that I find really, really interesting um, is George Pickingale. And um, George Pickingale come from Canoodon um, in Essex. And I've actually been there as well. Me and my mum actually took a trip to Canoodon to St. Nicholas Church. Oh, that's and cool. It's, it's really cool. There's like some cool folklore in it um, that basically as long as St. Nicholas Church stands, there'll always be six witches in the village, free of cotton and free of silk. No, free of satin, sorry. And it's basically to talk about the class of kind of witch. So free upper class and, and free lower class. Wow. Um, although I have to say it, it wouldn't leave many of the other villagers because the village is really small. It's literally a street, like it's tiny. Yeah, George Pickingale was a really interesting character because he was kind of almost there for that transition, um, you know, into the 1900s. And it's really where we kind of see this term coined of white witch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting because he's kind of also one of these Kind of folk that actually also kind of identified as a witch said that he ran nine witch covens and stuff like this and you know he would walk around with his black form blasting rod and he was quite a character because admittedly there were things he told that were not true were absolutely not true you know so he'd kind of say I'm the oldest man in Britain um and it turned out he he wasn't um <laughs> It was like from an agricultural farming community. So mm-hmm. he always said that he would sort of lay back and smoke his pipe and his nine white mice imps would kind of do the jobs around the farm for him. And, but he was quite a character in the sense that Harvest Day, and I, I actually find this quite, I find this quite comical. Um, he would, he would basically sort of threaten the farmers and say, you need to pay me beer or I'm going to curse your machinery. So it nice. won't work. <laughs> he was always found drunk in the bushes. Kind <laughs> 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 of love that story. Um, that is an it awesome story. Just gives me life a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, hilarious. I would say he's he's a really interesting character. Yeah, 
I've read a little bit about him. Yeah, he's definitely interesting. Yeah. So, Alora, how about you? You have anybody? I actually really love the story of Elizabeth of York and her mother. I and actually, I've never I've heard, heard this. Learned you've never heard this? No. Okay. Well, I actually learned about it in history, believe it or not, because I majored in history at uni. Um, and I this is where I heard this story, but essentially Elizabeth of York. So she's back the 1400s, like war of the roses time period. Okay. Lancasters versus the Yorks Mm -hmm. in British history. And Elizabeth was a farmer's daughter. She wasn't royalty, but she had been previously married. Her husband died in battle uh, for the Lancasters Mm -hmm. and she had two boys and she was, so she was widowed and they were going to lose their, you know, their farm and their land and et cetera. Um, her mother was actually a practitioner as was Elizabeth and Elizabeth is said to have had the gift of clairvoyance. Hmm. Um, she would have visions and things like that. And her, her mom is essentially responsible for hooking her up with, I think it's Edward the, I can't, Edward the second, I think can't remember but so she essentially became royalty from witchcraft which i think is like crazy yeah like a crazy story because this girl was widowed with children already and then ended up becoming the queen of england (laughs) (laughs) but she was the one which i don't know if you'll know any of what any of this but um if any of you have ever heard the story of the boys in the tower of london that went to the tower of London and were never found again. And Richard the third and all of that. That's, that's part of this story. I don't oh, know that one either. Okay. I've heard that. Yeah. Heard George that probably knows what I'm talking about there. <laughs> yeah. We visited tower of London when I was a kid and I remember that story. Yeah. Well, the two boys that were locked up in there, they were locked in there by Richard the third, who was Edward's brother, but they were Elizabeth of York's boys. And oh. And after Edward died, the boys were too young to take control of the throne. Mm -hmm. So in order for Richard to gain control of the throne, he locked the boys in the tower and then they disappeared. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I haven't actually looked up like Elizabeth of York, but that sounds really interesting. It sounds a little like Game of Thrones. Yeah, it does. It sounds kind of (laughs) cool. There actually is a really good show about this story. It's called Elizabeth of York, the White Queen. Or it's called The White Queen, I believe. But historically, that show is pretty accurate for Hollywood anyway. Mm. Awesome. I'll have to have a look at that after. Okay. Your turn, Kitty. My turn? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like a favorite person? Yeah. Yeah, I have two. Okay, the first one George probably knows about Bess or Bessie Dunlop. Yeah, Bessie Dunlop. So I have a lot of ancestors with the last name Dunlop from that exact area, and I've tried mm. desperately to like find a link to her in my family tree, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just kind of funny, you know, that yeah. I trace my line back to that time period. Um, in that area of 
I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Ayrshire, Ayrshire. How do you pronounce it? Okay. Yes, that. (laughs) But I, yeah, I find that story really interesting. Her familiar, you know, Thomas Reed was supposedly the ghost of a soldier that was helping her acquire riches. And she also had like some stories going on about the queen of Elfland. And the other one that I wanted to mention, her name was Madame Perrette. And she lived in 15th century Paris. Mm. And I, I feel like she might be an ancestor of mine as well, but still I, so this brings up something real quick. I wanted to say, I have this theory that I think a, I know records weren't kept great, like back in those days, but they still were kept by the church. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I feel like some of these accused, or maybe even most of the accused, witches that were, you know, actually convicted might have been purposely like cut off from their family tree. And that's why you can't find a lot of, you know, tracing it back to certain people. Hmm. Anyway, maybe that's a random theory that I'm yeah. spitting out there, but um, she's my second favorite one. Cause she was actually a, a really well-known midwife. She had like 15 children that all lived to adulthood. Mm. And she was accused of witchcraft. Basically someone kind of suckered her into acquiring things that she should not have been. (laughs) It's just like this whole long story, but she ended up just being put like in the stocks and they let her go because the people in Paris were like vying for her saying, you know, she's delivered hundreds of babies and you got to forgive her kind of thing. She sounds fabulous, by the way, with there's that a, name. Yeah, there's a document I actually downloaded the PDF today. That's the whole story about her that I wanted to share um, with whoever's interested. So if you guys are interested in that, I'll I'll email that to you. It's pretty. Yeah, pretty neat. please, I'd love to hear that. On to George's fabulous book that I have read. Mercy. Barbarous <laughs> words. So you touch on folk Catholicism. Yes. I, so I want to talk about that, but I wanted to say first, I particularly liked the Holy Trinity horseshoe charm. Yeah. Because it blends the old like pagan elements with the new Christian beliefs, you know, at that time period. And it kind of surprised me to see the Holy spirit invoked in conjunction with Woden and Loki. Yeah. It's kind of like, sometimes it's kind of like, and it's interesting because you actually, it's not British, but there's a Scandinavian um, black book really called, it's called the Black Books of Elvrum. And basically it was found in a loft um, in Scandinavia, but you, um, in the charms and in the spells, they kind of call on like uh, Woden, Loki, Jesus, and the Virgin Mary, Satan, all at the same go, like wow. some of these charms. And it's almost like, <laughs> we're just going to chuck all these guys in if and see if anyone actually hears us enough. So we can like... <laughs> um, yeah, like yeah. who's, who's going to listen, right? Just, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, but there really is that kind of, that almost to a degree, like eclecticism when it comes to kind of, you know, that versatility in a sense, a spiritual versatility, being able to kind of employ um, saints, able to employ, you know, uh, spirits of the land and and also, you know, older, older gods, older pagan elements. But yeah, it's kind of almost uh, at times it's kind of, we're just, we're just going to kind of see who listens here. (laughs) Right. I love that. That's cool. Yeah. 
All right. So I notice in your book, George, you talk about Isabel Godey. Is that how you pronounce her name? Godey? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always want to say Gaudi because that's like the American in me, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> Isabel Godey, you talk about her a lot throughout the book. So I wanted to hear, basically, I want your opinion on her. And I think I might know, but do you believe she was truly who she said she was? Was she really a witch or maybe was there other things influencing her? Because I've done a little bit of reading on her um, through Emma Wilby's book. Yeah. Brilliant books. I love them. Yes. And it just, she presents all these different like factors that might've been playing into Isabel's confession. But I still, for me, I still kind of feel like she was probably a witch, but I just wanted to hear what you thought about it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. The term witch, like the scholar in me and and a lot of scholars, um, you kind of find a lot of scholars such as like um, Owen Davis, um, you know, the kind of, there is this kind of attitude of, you know, that you have to think of those kind of times where people like tortured, they would kind of say anything. And torture in England um, in the early modern period was illegal. Um, but they still done stuff that compared to this day and age still would have been torture. You know, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't considered torture to keep someone up and not let them sleep and, you know, put them in on sanitary conditions and wow. not feed them and stuff like that. So, you know, that would be considered torture. But torture in Scotland um, to get a confession was actually, you know, it was legal um, because the laws are different in Scotland and England and still compared to this day, they're different. But the term which is a really interesting one because people kind of talk about this mass hysteria that we see and they talk about um, different sort of um, parts of it, like ergo poisoning and stuff like that, like a fungus in riot that kind of causes people to hallucinate Mm -hmm. and all Mm -hmm. these things. And, And, you know, the scholar in me is kind of like, there is that kind of side to it. However, I definitely believe 120% that in the early modern period, people would have been practicing witchcraft because even if it was just hysteria, you have to bear in mind, this was a time where disease was literally crawling around every corner. Like literally if your chickens died, you died. Like if your cow died, you died. Mm. Um, People's children um, would, would have a very, people would in general have a very low mortality rate because um, there was no things like vaccinations. There was no things like, you know, sort of medical kind of advances we have today and not even just that, unsanitary conditions. Mm-hmm. It, the list goes on, but it was really, really perilous times. And I think that, you know, people would have been desperate. And if people knew that, oh, you know, there's this thing called witchcraft where if you pledge your soul to the devil, um, you'll get sent a spirit and they'll do all those things for you. And if people are suffering and in poverty and dying and desperate, yeah, I think people would have tried that. Yeah, um, I, I think, that. yeah, I do think, I don't think that people met up in groups physically, but very much what Emma Wilby says about the kind of, the astral Sabbath, the kind of, you know, that kind of spiritual kind of journey um, in terms of fetch flight and stuff like that. I I have to be honest, I I think a lot of people are very hesitant to say whether or not someone was a witch now, because there are a lot of scholars saying, no, 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 it wasn't the thing. And, And to a degree, I kind of do get that. But actually, 
I'm, I'm just being honest. I do believe witches existed. I do think there is that side to it that I've spoke about earlier that does come into the factor of it. But mm-hmm. I do think that Isabel Godey is one of the most detailed um, witch trial confessions that we have. Yeah. Um, so much so that she's influenced, um, you know, modern traditional practice um, practices and, and branches of witchcraft. So, yeah, I, I do believe that she was who she said she was. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I just think it's too yeah. detailed when you read it. Yeah. Yeah, the spells and, and the mm-hmm. workings and, you know, yeah, I do believe that. Yeah. And some people will be like, oh, my God, like you actually said it. And I'm like, yeah, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> say it. But say it. Yeah, I can't. It kind of to a degree. I know it sounds really awful. I know people have different points of view. But it kind of annoys me if someone's like, she wasn't a witch. I'm like, mm, you know. <laughs> but how do you know? They didn't live back then, you know. Yeah, exactly. And oh. and I guess likewise with us. But I just, from my own personal, yeah, I just, yeah, I feel like she was. I think so too. I just, yeah. If you if you start to read the confessions and what what all Emma Wilby goes into, it's yeah. just, it's hard to, to not think that. <laughs> you know anyway so do you has she or her confessions influenced your magic in any way yeah it's do you know I I can kind of speak about I'll I'll speak about this now because it was a while back but it was with a friend that I used to work frequently with in Manchester um a really good friend of mine a really close friend and we had some incredible experiences we would go to um a nature park that we both ended up actually having a really deep bond with the land. Um, and it was one evening we had performed the fifth half, the, the kind of shape-shifting spell. Um, and we sung it. We actually sung the spell. And I'm not going to sing because I have had singing lessons for five years and it just, it didn't work out. I'm sorry, guys. Um, you know, <laughs> pop idol was never a thing for me. I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, we sung this um, and this kind of charm, I shall go into a hair, you know, um, the very famous one. Yeah. And it was the dead at night um, in the middle of a circle, in the middle of the woods and like lit by the moon and it was just the the actual journey we had as in like fetch flight spirit flight it was it was like a hedge witchery right that we had both performed right but it it was it was really beautiful like it was one of those kind of moments that will stick with me for the rest of my life I think wow I could just picture that like when as you were saying it I was getting this visual and goosebumps right (laughs) it was it was really honestly I have it was it was beautiful it was really beautiful but we had some incredible moments in that kind of nature reserve where we used to work anyway it was just really just yeah the dynamic between us working magically was always brilliant and you know yeah I kind of miss it about not being in Manchester you know Mm. Uh, yeah awesome we're gonna shift gears a little bit and okay. we're going to talk familiars. So do you think, George, that there's a misconception in modern witchcraft as to what a familiar spirit is? And like, what is your opinion on what a familiar spirit is? 
Oh, you're bringing up the familiar argument. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ding, 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 round one. <laughs> oh, no, no. I probably <laughs> agree with you, but... <laughs> I'm just joking it's just um it's funny the reason I say that is because I kind of have seen quite a lot of debates particularly like online like Facebook mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah yeah like it's um but it's for me I'll kind of give you the definition of what a familiar spirit is to me um a familiar spirit is essentially a spirit um that the practitioner or the witch has a familiar bond with Um, has a deep, close personal relationship with or has some sort of um, contracted pack, that familiarity. Um, So a familiar spirit could be, you know, when we think familiar spirits, we just think toads, cats, that kind of animal kind of side of it, the idea of imps, which can be, um, but also a familiar spirit, you know, there are, there are, kind of folk in the past that worked with angels and worked with angelic intelligences, such as the grimoire of um, Arthur Gauntlet, um, which is a 17th century London cunning man's book of um, prayers and and conjurations. It's fantastic. It's edited by David Rankin, and it's one of my favourite books. Um, But in it, it employs the use of angels. And, you know, there were some cunning Mm. folk that worked with angels. So, when we think of familiar spirits, also Tom Reed, he was a, you know, Bessie Dunlop's mm. familiar spirit was a um, a soldier that had died in battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my kind of, that's the way I would define a familiar spirit. I think when it comes to the modern witchcraft movement um, in regards to whether it's Wicca or traditional witchcraft or eclectic witchcraft, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, I think that, I think that there is kind of, some misconceptions because some people can kind of call a pet a familiar and to a degree yes um I didn't actually used to agree with that notion until um something happened and I ended up with a pet that there were all these mad omens and synchronicities and every time I would work she would go crazy and she would have to come out and come out of her tank bless her soul and yeah and I kind of it did kind of change my mind to a degree, but a familiar spirit to me is a spirit. Um, but when it comes to other people's practices, I'm a little bit of a, I'm a bit of a hippie because <laughs> I always <laughs> think, um, you know what, like if you're not hurting anyone and what you do is, is effective for you and it's working and then you do you, you know, live your best life. I mean, the way I always see it is I kind of have my practice and I kind of have the connections I have to my spirits and um, and I'm happy with that practice. And, and if anyone else is and they have different points of view, oh, so be it. doesn't matter, you know, as long as well, they're living their best life. Yeah. Well, back up for just one second, because we're ta- so we're talking about familiar spirits and you related it to Bessie Dunlap having a soldier spirit that helped her in her magical practice. So for Mm -hmm. people out there listening, what, so I think one thing that people will think is, okay, so what's the difference then between a familiar spirit and a spirit guide? So a familiar spirit, and that's actually a good point, Alora. Sorry about that. Um, oh, no. but a familiar, it's a good point. No, um, I have, honestly, I have a brain like a sieve sometimes. Um, <laughs> too much partying back in the day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a 
familiar spirit compared to a spirit guide. A spirit guide is essentially, um, as I know it, because I, I actually grew up with spiritualism because my mom's a clairvoyant. Oh. Um, she's a she's a Christian spiritualist. Um, I bet so, you had an interesting childhood. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I mean, you know, like my mom's sugar pot spell in there. We literally, you know, she, you know, my mom also sort of does her own version of folk magic as well. Um, so yeah, but it's it's interesting because in spiritualism they have spirit guides that will kind of guide them on the path and kind of help them connect through to spirit um, and that kind of thing. Whereas a familiar spirit is. Okay, so um, I actually, you know, just want to talk to you about something, check in. I'm really low on money and I really need some help financially. Could you do this for me? This is how it's making me feel. You know, um, if you do this for me, I will give you this, you know, and it's and then a familiar spirit will go and do things. Um, a familiar spirit will guide you and, and, and help you with spell work. Um, there are accounts of familiar spirits um travel into alpha May, such as tom reed with bessie dunlop who said he, you know he was said to grab bessie dunlop by the apron strings and kind of take her to alpha May, and mm -hmm. and she would have gain of this insight of knowledge of the fae um of, of sort of charms and spells to work for various ailments um and familiar spirits very much do give you sort of spells and charms to do um but they also go and do things for you you know they'll physically you know if you could say to a familiar spirit can you look you know just look after Madge down the road she's not well and she's she's quite old you know and, and if you do this I'll give you this or you know on the other hand like you know because you go and slap Stephanie a bit for me she's doing <laughs> and off the line, you know? <laughs> so you know versatility <laughs> nice <laughs> versatility that's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I hope that kind of clarifies it a bit more yeah I, th I think that did definitely uh yeah. because that really puts a a lens on it where familiar spirits are spirits who do your bidding in exchange for uh offerings yeah, where like a pact yeah like where spirit yeah. guides are more just that guides I guess yeah and so it's, it's, oh go ahead I was just saying it's it's interesting because most um, if you look at most accounts of spirits and spirit work, there always kind of is that pact. There is that exchange. If you do this for me, um, then I will do this for you. Um, that kind of thing. And if you think about it, just as human beings, we do pacts with each other all the time, with right. partners, with friends. You know, oh, could you do this for me, and I'll I'll get you this. You know, and we don't even think about it. So, you know, on a more mundane level, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. Well, speaking of familiar spirits and magical aid, what about the fairy folk? Do they play a large role in British folk magic? And what is your experience with them? So the fairy folk do play a large role in um, British folk magic. And they kind of, they appear all over Britain in ballads, in songs, um, yeah, there's like, there's a long history there, um, you know, and they, you know, they are essentially kind of, they're their own kind of people, basically, they're their own kind of beings. Um, the fairy folk live by their own morals, their own rules, their own ethics. Um, and yeah, they're kind of, 
there's kind of this idea of um, particularly, you know, you see in, in, in accounts of witch trials, there is very much um, this kind of idea of, of, of communion with the fey folk, whether it be um, archetypal figures like Robin Goodfellow um, or, you know, Puck, this kind of figurehead that is the kind of almost authority, so to speak, of the fey. Or we have the Queen of Alphamay in Scotland. It's Nick Nevin, um, the Queen of the Fairy. Um, mm. And there is this kind of idea of, you know, the fey folk kind of holding knowledge, um, holding sort of, you know, sort of cures for ailments and, and charming and stuff like that, but also on the same, on the same hand, kind of having a more sinister side. Um, throughout my practice, I have had experience of the Fae, um, some good, some not so good. Um, <laughs> I have to be honest, um, it's almost like drinking when you're a teenager it's okay to do it but not in the house you know <laughs> like when I work with the fae it's just like it's it's okay to do it but we'll do it in a park somewhere or in the woods like we right. won't take this home um just because for me I've not had good experiences working with the fae in my own just for me personally I do have friends that do work with them in the home and you know um, but for me, um, and just what I found, like there was one time I worked a charm um, for prosperity, actually. It was a charm for prosperity. And I was like, you know, stupidly, I didn't even think it. I was like, I'm going to get the fame involved and just kind of ask them for help. Um, and then one of my friends <laughs> the day after, um, I had this awful dream about... Um, I had had this dream and then my friend had had this dream. Um, but the dream I had was that there were um, these kind of like brownies, but almost like kind of, I can't explain them, like stick like little people running on all fours up the walls oh whilst God. I was trying to sleep. And then my friend had a dream. No. It was like, oh my God, I had this like really freaky dream about you. And I was like, what happened? It was like, well, there was this like, old woman in the woods and there were all these twines and vines around and she just said tell George they're coming for him Whoa. never again will I ever do that <laughs> there was a lot of things I had to go and do after that and yeah I just I just feel like when working with the fight it's not all like that it's not like you know don't blink or you know you'll you'll get your throat cut or it's nothing <laughs> like that but, you know, sometimes with certain fate, I just think you have to be super, super careful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, super careful. I agree. Well, I was just going to say, like, have you noticed that people who can or do successfully work with the fae in their own home, have you found that they themselves are more home-based practitioners? Like, like, like they're working with kitchen. household spirits kind yeah of thing. like kitchen yeah. witches they work with household spirits that kind of stuff um it's hmm. i mean there's one friend that i have and i love her to bits um and she works with the fight and she is actually very fight herself she really is just kind of quite fairy like um i love her to bits um but she she's very solitary within her practice and it's very personal to her to the point where, you know, she'll find it very difficult to, she won't actually work magically with someone that she does not know. 
um mm, you know yeah. so she's very very solitary but i will say she's a really powerful practitioner um and she's a she's a you know really good psychic she's an insane psychic actually um so yeah <laughs> there's there are no secrets from from suzanne like any <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um yeah she she tends to from what I've kind of not you know from what I've kind of time I've spent with her and just being a friend in general um I guess she's a lot more solitary with her practice um mm. but yeah very cool so we're going to continue on with the spirit topic I wanted to just address the nocturnal servitor that's in your book yes So in your book, you say this is a spirit that is created by the magician, him or herself, and created for a sole purpose and reason. And you Mm. go on to teach the readers how to create their own servitor. And you emphasize how important it is to give the spirit a deadline after which the spirit will cease to exist. My question is this, what happens if the spirit is not given a deadline? (laughs) So there are some spirits, just before I say this, there are some spirits, I kind of want to clarify, there are some spirits that can be made um, to for a longer purpose. Um, and I have done that, and there are other practitioners that have done that. Um, but it, it takes a lot of, you have to be very, very careful what you say, because what happens if you don't um, kind of, it, in a, yeah, in a kind of way to put it, destroying the spirit or you know releasing the spirit back into the ether kind of thing mm-hmm. is that you've basically created this spirit from your will um but not only that you've given it a life of its own um and you feed the spirit up but once that task is complete um two things are going to happen if you don't feed the spirit it's going to drain the next life force it sees that it's linked to i.e you <laughs> because oh. you've made it um, or it gets bored um, <laughs> and you know this kind of spirit that had a purpose that's then left around to wander and float to its own device wow. is yeah it can be quite dangerous I've you know I have heard horror stories of people um, that have had spirits that kind of left um, to their own devices um, and you know to the point where people have been like I can see this really like malnutritioned sort of thing behind you that's kind of latching onto you um, yeah it's it's it sounds like a, gross. like a movie um, <laughs> yeah like I guess like a um a fabulously skinny dementor from Harry Potter <laughs> <laughs> well it, um, it, I'm sitting here as you're talking and I'm thinking this is how this sounds like how poltergeist come about almost yeah because that is, again, it's that kind of energy, isn't it? It's that kind of projection of that energy into something. And if you give it a life force of its own, um, you know, if you push enough energy into something, yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's, that yeah. is, that is so insightful, Laura. That is so true. <laughs> so don't forget to give your servitors a deadline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Always rip up your servitors. <laughs> oh, man. 
Okay. So healing is a big part of British folk magic. Would you say that this is something you do for others often? And what is one of your favorite healing methods or tools, if you don't mind sharing? Um, okay. So I do do a lot of healing work for, um, folk often and quite often um I tend to I tend to do a lot of healing work for children um for infants and yeah I kind of like um yeah it's just a thing I've just always kind of done um particularly with like ill like babies and stuff like that okay Um, so if the listeners didn't already love George they will now (laughs) (laughs) I'm like I say this I'm like the most unchild friendly person in the world but when it comes to like actual you know kind of you know if I see like ill children it's like a thing I'm like no I can't you're you're gonna get better like yeah um so it's it's a thing that I've kind of always done um but yeah it's you know it um in terms of the actual method do you know I'm, I'm really simplistic with how I work like and and I kind of hope that comes through in the book but like the way I work is very simplistic. So actually sometimes even, so it sounds so silly, but if it's like someone's name and you say their name over and over and say, be healed, be healed. And then you could be like, you know, I don't know, like Natalie, Natalie, be healed, be healed, Natalie, Natalie, be healed, be healed. And just chanting that over and over and again. Mm. Um, but what I often do, like if it's, if it's children, I tend to work with St. Bridget because she is um, in yeah. sort of seen as the kind of matriarch. She's seen as the mother, the midwife as well. So I tend to do a lot of work of healing with her, um, but also for adults as well. Um, and yeah, I've also worked with her to do healing for animals too. Um, but I also have one of the things I use quite a lot is um, stroking stones. So, you know, a stone where you kind of say a chant over and over again, stroking, um, seeing it as that ailment um, diminishing from the person. And then um, with the, you know, you do that with the left hand and then with the right hand, stroking kind of healing intent um, towards them. But yeah, I also use um, candles from churches a lot. Like, you know, like small taper candles that you get for like 25p in the church? Mm, Yeah. I don't know. Um, I say 25p like you like you know you give like a donation for the candles and then you kind of light candles and yeah um I put a pan in grab a a doggy bag and sort of <laughs> you know sort of <laughs> I, t- I, t- I take it home I'm more of a home gal you know um, <laughs> but yeah <I'm, laughs> I tend to you know I'll I'll tend to burn those for people because I find that really um potent actually um, so I'll, I'll do, I work a lot with smoke and fire. I'm like, I, I work a lot with fire. Um, so yeah, fire plays a big element in, in healing. But most of the time, if I'm going to do an invocation, it will be, you know, I'll speak from the heart. I'm, I'm very much like, look, this is what's happening. This is kind of the crack, you know, <laughs> this is what's going on. Um, you know, and then, yeah, and then I kind of, really simplistically state what I'm doing. Love that. George, can you tell us before we wrap everything up, are you working on any projects currently? Is there maybe another book in the near future? 
Oh, I feel like I should start to be all cloak and dagger and mysterious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Um, so, yeah, I am. I am working on another book. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into it. And I'm not going to give a deadline because if I give a deadline, I just completely fail it. Like I flop it every time. And I'm just, yeah, like I'm useless at stuff. Like I can't work under a deadline. Any job that involved that, I'd be terrible at. <laughs> but yeah, I am. I am working on something awesome. um, in the future. It's it's a book, and um, again, it's it's based around folk magic. But yeah, yeah, that's. I don't know. That's all I'm gonna say. I'm just yeah. You've I'm gonna said, leave it at that. <laughs> you've said plenty. That that will work. All right. Well, before we wrap it up, George, please remind everyone about the name of your book and where they can purchase it as well as where they can find you online. Um, My book is Barbarous Words, a compendium of conjurations, British folk magic and other popish charms. Um, And it's available to buy on Amazon and it's available worldwide. And if you read it and you like it, please leave a review because that really, really helps. And yeah, you can find me on Instagram at the North English Witch. Um, that is the only Instagram account I have as sadly at the moment, there's a really big um, kind of fraudulent activity happening with Instagram with people impersonating other sort of practitioners and tarot readers as well. Um, but yeah, I'm the North English Witch, all one word. And on YouTube, um, it's George Hairs. You can catch me as George Hairs. Awesome. Very We'd cool. like to thank our amazing friend and author, George Harris, for joining oh, us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. This is, You're welcome. I've had Dur- an absolute ball. Yeah. Me too. Well, we'd love to have you again when your new book releases. So It's a picture book, but yeah. <laughs> it's a picture book. <laughs> oh, buddy. All right. Well, thank you for joining us during this magical hour and educating us on the ins and outs of British folk magic. Please go check out his book and give him a follow. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for our first episode in season four. And if you don't mind, grant some of your magical energy to your witchy sisters, subscribe to and review this podcast. And as a reminder, if you're looking for a witchy show on the more taboo, controversial side, Subscribe to our sister podcast, Mirrors Well, now on your preferred podcast app. And remember, whether you're in the land of the Fae or the land of the ancestors, stay otherworldly.